stories in numbers. Stories that will make you feel either good or bad, but in a nice way. But not everything can be captured by numbers. We need stories to make sense of the world we live in. Cuenta na may cuento. Stories in numbers. With Michael Cañares. Good day and welcome to another episode of Stories in Numbers. So we have here Miko, who is our, of course, the owner of the podcast. Uh, Miko, before we begin, just to set the mood, how has it been since your first episode of your podcast? I was <laughs> at some point very excited to release the podcast out. And I think there were a lot of subscribers already, but particularly people that have been interested or that were interested in the kinds of things that I will be speaking about. And of course, friends and family, it has been quite a ride. Okay, so you've had feedback probably from people who listen to the podcast. And if we would recall, you mentioned in the first episode that for this episode, you're going to talk about the assessment that you did for Tagbilaran City. So tell us what this research is and why did you decide to do research? I mean, like you've mentioned that you did this pro bono for the city government. So why? What? What was the driver? When the pandemic actually hit the Philippines sometime in March this year, what actually happened was I saw several social economic impact assessments that were done at the national level. But I think, uh, and as always, the primary, the main playing field in terms of uh, controlling COVID-19, its spread as well as abating the impact that it will cause on the economic lives of people, will be fought in the at the local level. Right. Yeah, so I wasn't actually able to see any localized social economic impact assessment that has been done. And I thought that as a resident of Tangdila Island City, uh, this should be a service that we will need to do to the city. We are researchers, I'm a researcher myself. My first step of consulting actually does a lot of research outside the country and also within the country. And I just thought that we should make scholarship locally relevant. As scholars, as researchers, we should do something to help the city recover. And so that's the reason why we did this social economic impact assessment of COVID-19 and all of these are practically done by a set of volunteer researchers. It's interesting to note that you were able to engage the city government in this project. So how did that come? I mean, I wrote the concept note for this one. I had a discussion with USAID search city coordinator, Dr. Rosalinda Paredes. And it just so happened that she was also very much interested in the work that we will be doing. And she said she will be supporting the project. That was also pivotal in the research process because we have an insider within the city government. Somebody who can actually make things work and encourage department heads to be participative in, in the study. She also has access to the city mayor. So when I approached to her the idea, she promised that she would promote the idea to the city government, particularly me to Mayor Babayan. And so what actually happened later was that I met the mayor, I presented to him the concept of the research, and after I think 15 minutes of talking about it, the mayor actually gave his full support. So when you conducted the research, was it, of course, it was in coordination with the city government, were you able to ask them to participate in the actual research work or the research team only involved people from your firm? The city government officials were actually participating in the conduct of the research. So for example, we did rapid job loss survey, 
And we were actively working with that with Mr. Alvin Akuzar of the Barangay Affairs Unit of the city. We also looked into revenues and as well as business registrations because we're actually getting our sample from the list of registered businesses. So we actually worked with a student of mine, Gilbert Tejano, who is currently the acting city treasurer of the city. So both Alvin and Gilbert are my students when I was still teaching at Holiday University that sort of made things a lot easier for me. The perks uh, of being a teacher. Yeah, that's true. And also, I was working with the City Planning and Development Office with Engineer Margate, Stella Margate, who actually helped us in distributing the questionnaires for the market vendors because we were studying the plight of market vendors in, in the four public markets here in Tamina. So they were practically involved every step of the way. And I really liked it because even after the presentation, people are actively involved with the dissemination of the results and using the results of the study for purposes of informing policies. So I was actually speaking right after the research presentation with Lynette Iba, who was my classmate in the College of Law at Colonial University. And we're looking at the results of the survey of tricycle drivers, which was also partly covered by the study. Okay, so you've already mentioned about tricycle drivers and basically about who the respondents were of this. You've had a group of respondents, like there were separate survey questionnaires for a separate group of respondents, right? Yeah, yeah. So how, what was the criteria or what were the thoughts behind choosing who the respondents would be? Uh, so first, we thought that uh, the one that actually makes the economy rolling, at least in the city, are the businessmen. So a large portion of the study actually focused on businessmen because they're the ones that are actually selling goods, hiring people, and at the same time also making the economy run. Then we also wanted to look into employees because employees are actually the ones feeding their families and the impact assessment would yield meaningful results if we're able to actually cover people that are actually working and providing support to their families. And because we also wanted to look into formal and, and informal employment. So we also, we don't want only to look into employees. So that's why we included in the fold own account workers. That's why we looked into tricycle drivers and market vendors as a proxy for that. Okay, so let me just do a recap of that. So you have three main groups of respondents. So you began with the businesses and naturally you would want to know the impact of the businesses on the workers. So you interviewed the workers, specifically the formal sector. And then, of course, you also included the informal sectors, which one of those are the tricycle drivers. So for today's episode, where would you like us to focus? Shall we talk about the results of all these respondents or we will do one respondent, group of respondents at a time? I think for this episode, I'd like to talk about the impact of COVID-19 on businesses. And for the third episode of the series, we'll talk about the impact on employees. And finally, on the fourth episode, I'd like to talk about the impact of the pandemic to on-account workers. And then for the fifth episode, I would like to talk about how, what are the strategies by which we'll be able to recover out of this crisis. So that's interesting. So we have a lot of episodes to look forward to if we want to know all the, the result of the survey. So as you were saying, we, we are going to talk about the impact, the social economic impact of COVID-19 on the businesses. So if you are going to put it in a nutshell, what would be, what would you consider the biggest impact of the pandemic on the businesses or you could add details if you want to it's better to deliver the details yeah but before i'd like to talk about that i still would like to talk about who are the ones recovering 
I mean, in terms of when we talk about the businesses that we survey, mm-hmm. who are those that we survey? Yeah. So we have actually a total of 206 respondents from the business sector. 96% of them are actually micro to small businesses. By micro to small, we mean? So uh, when we talk about the classification of businesses, we actually use the Department of Trade and Industries classification by asset size. So micro are businesses are those that are having assets of below 3 million. Small is 3 million up to 15 million pesos in asset size. Medium is 15 million up to 100 million. And large is about 100 million pesos in terms of asset size. So if you look at the respondents of our survey, 96% of that are actually micro to small businesses. This, this means that these are the businesses with assets of 15 million and below. Was that the intention of the survey to target this group of businesses or any business could have joined? It's just that this group of businessmen were more responsive to the survey. You're actually right. So you did not actually target a specific set. We wanted to cover all. But unfortunately, I think the micro and small businesses are the ones that are actually most responsive to the survey. So as you can see, this was conducted during the time that Tagbilana City was still in general community quarantine. And that means we don't have actually a way of going around and actually distributing questionnaires. So everything, all of the surveys that we did is actually done online, except for the rapid job loss assessment that we conducted. So this one, everything was done online. Do you think it is saying something about who is most impacted? We cannot say that for sure, but that can be an interpretation that we can make, primarily because, yeah, those that will be interested to say something about the impact of the crisis to them would most likely be those that are most affected. Yeah, because they have something to say. Okay, so going back now, so can we already talk about what do you think is the overall impact of COVID-19 on the businessmen or the business sector in Tagular? So it's it's largely on three things. First is a decrease in sales. Second is a decrease in forward orders. And third is a decrease in the number of employees. So as a matter of fact, 96.12% of the businesses actually reported a decrease in sales of sales between 51 to 100%. Mm-hmm. 88.83% of the businesses actually reported a loss of forward orders by 51 to 100%. And finally, 91.26% of uh, the businesses actually mentioned that they they had a temporary reduction in the number of employees. What do we mean by forward orders? This means that these, these are, in the case, for example, of hotels, these are those that are these are forward bookings, meaning bookings that are not yet taken but that have already been reserved. So basically that's from the service sector. No, not only, because there are also some traders that have forward orders, right? So I mean like uh, those that are actually selling, they also have forward orders for certain sets of deliveries for a particular period of time. So that's still considered part of it. So in effect you are saying that eighty-eight percent and more of the businesses who have participated in the survey have been impacted greatly by COVID-19. That's actually correct. If you look at the types of businesses in terms of the degree of yeah, impact, it be interesting to it's the service establishments that are actually hit the hardest. So for example, before EZQ, they had in total, in aggregate, the service establishments actually have 187.05 million in sales. And during the ECQ, it dipped significantly by 83.1%. It now becomes 31.6 million. So you can see that. That's a very big decrease. Yeah, it's a very big decrease. And if you look at the recovery period after ECQ, it's not that big. 
it was not actually returned, able to return to post-COVID-19 figures because from 31.6, we only had 39.4 million sales out of the services, out of the service sector. Now, the others are not particularly impacted significantly. There's a dip, for example, for retailers, wholesalers, and manufacturers, but it's not as stark. I mean, it's, the, the dip is not as deep as what the service sector is actually experiencing. And we are talking about again of what period in the community quarantine? What dates did you conduct the survey? This is about uh, so the before ECQ part is before March 15. During ECQ is somewhere between March 15 up to May. And then May is after ECQ. So the survey, you closed the survey at what date? May 30. Mm -hmm. So they were all, the responses were all referring to during a heightened community quarantine stage. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so what, what do you think were the causes, what were the main drivers for this very big impact, especially on the service sector in terms of their revenue? So the first immediate cause is, the, of course, the temporary business closure or the shutdown. Which was ordered during the quarantine, right? Yes, yes. And even after the quarantine, uh, closure and shutdowns are still imposed. After the ECQ, closure and shutdown are still imposed to businesses that are not considered essential. Yes. Yeah, so that's the first primary reason. The second one is that customers are not actually paying their dues or bills. So, uh, for example, if people are actually selling on account, wholesalers, for example, are selling on account to traders, traders are not actually paying their dues on time. Uh -huh. So was this due to the economic impact already on the customers or was it also, was it just because people were not really able to move during this time? So that's why... So if you talk about, if you talk about the customers not paying their dues, it's largely caused by cash flow difficulties. Because as a matter of fact, 89.3% of businesses are actually experiencing significant cash flow difficulties. They're not able to sell and therefore they're not able to pay. So the third reason is reduced logistic services. So they can't move around their products. So because of the ports were, yeah, the ports were closed, uh, the airports were shut down, and everything else that would allow uh, the movement of goods from one place to the other is significant. So that's the reason why uh, these are these impacts actually felt by businesses. So most of the the cash flow problems are actually caused by low domestic sales. And, and by low domestic sales, we mean sales to people within the, the Philippines the city. or just the city. Within the city and within the Philippines, and also because you see that there's a lot of foreign customers, more particularly for the service sector. So hotels are actually catering, for example, to loads and truck loads of tourists coming in. And so all of these things are well actually called that during the community quarantine. And the, some sellers also were not able to export their goods to neighboring provinces. Yes, in a way. Of the... Yeah. So having said that, how have the businesses coped with the difficulties that they were actually experiencing during the community quarantine? For a lot of the businesses, their coping mechanisms are can be classified into three. One is human resource, the other one is marketing, the third one is on finance. So for human resources, what they did is actually change work arrangements. So they're doing teleworking, work from home arrangements, but in some others, they're actually reducing number of workers or layoffs. But the others are also doing negotiation of terms when it comes to employment. So like, for example, some would be required to report only for three days in a, in a month. And because this is allowed under Department of Labor and Employment rules, 
is, is actually one of the strategies that businesses did to protect essentially cash flow problems as well. So they don't have anyone to serve anyway. So they need to lay off workers that are working in the service sector. On the marketing side, they're actually reframing their market strategies. So they're actually diversifying their sales channels. So you can see, for example, that there's a lot of people that are participating in Tapo Sabarangay that Mayor Babaya sponsored during the crisis. So uh, there were sellers who are actually not anymore reporting to public markets, but they go to the barangay halls where the tables of barangay is actually being implemented. Some develop new products or services, but others are actually reducing production. And finally, a lot of the businesses are actually protecting their liquidity. So they negotiated with banks and suppliers on terms of payment, as well as others are actually decreasing or controlling business expenses. As a matter of fact, there were actually a lot of closures that have been reported for a lot of businesses that were not able to weather through uh, the crisis. Does the data say about what of the coping mechanisms is the most effective or where businesses like lean on the most? We we're not able to get that data actually. So we're not actually saying, we did not actually ask the respondents. So which ones do they think are the most effective in terms of dealing with the prices? However, the three you mentioned came out like as frequent answer of the yes, businesses. They're the most prominent answers. The most prominent. prominent would be what? Like of the three, can you still rank them further or so, um, they're just about the same? We, we, can, we can actually rank that by looking at the percentages of their coping mechanisms. So actually the coping mechanisms actually is dependent on the nature of businesses. However, if you look at across, you can see that temporarily reducing employment is a top one. The second one is increasing marketing efforts. And the third one is doing online sales. So if you look at the top answers to the question, I think this is actually reflective of what we're able to find out in the job loss, rapid job loss survey. Because based on the rapid job loss survey, we're able to see, which is, I will be talking about more in intently next, in the next episode. episode. We've seen that more than 5,000 employees actually had their jobs temporarily or permanently. So it's like affected. a consequential impact. Yeah, precisely. Due to the leading coping mechanism adopted by the businesses. Yeah. So, given the impact and what they have done so far in order to cope with these impacts, what do you think are the measures that? these businesses seek from the government in order to help them cross these difficult times? Actually, it's very interesting because if you take a look at the top three financial measures that they need, you can see that these are the top one is actually tax waivers or tax breaks. Mm -hmm. Second one is financial programs like, for example, low interest credit line and credit guarantees. And the third one is employment programs like, for example, uh, temporary unemployment programs. That's interesting because are they ranked or? They're ranked. These are the top three financial measures that they need. Okay, so that's very interesting to know because in terms of coping mechanisms, the businesses like tended towards the employment aspect of their business, like making people doing changes in the work arrangements of people or temporarily laying off people. But when it comes to what measures they need from the government, the aspect on employment comes third. Why do you think is that? We didn't actually ask this from businesses and why we didn't have, for example, a question that says, why is it that you're actually having these measures as compared to the types of 
impact or coping mechanisms that you're actually doing. But I think the reason why tax waivers and financial programs come on the top of the list because these are the top ones that will actually protect them from farther bleeding, financial bleeding. So, I mean, the laying off of workers actually is still something that they can justify to do. So they're allowed to do it by law. Yeah, yeah. They think protecting themselves from farther bleeding is the one which is most important during this time. But I think we also have to take, give credit to the businesses because they're also saying that, you know, employment programs are still important because they have also seen that. It's probably just saying that because they have less control or no control at all in terms of taxation while they have more or less given some leeway in terms of how they're going to deal with their people. Yeah, but when you think about it, what makes it interesting is when you combine financial measures with health measures. So we were asking them actually what financial measures and health measures do they want from government. You will be able to see that when you combine financial measures with health measures, health measures actually win. So for example, the top now, the top measure that they need now is supply of PPEs or personal protective equipment. In effect, superseding yeah, the financial, the financial measures. measures. The second top one, uh, the, the, the second top uh, health uh, measure that they wanted is more information on the transmission and spread of the virus. And the third one is more clarity on measures to contain the crisis. So the financial measures are actually on the bottom of the list. Yeah, at the end of the day, like we, we all just want to survive this crisis. Yeah, and I think also because uh, the businesses, they know for a fact that not containing the virus will mean significant losses in the long term. In the long run. Yeah, because I mean, like they will not be able to go back to operations, especially those that are mandated for closure. So when they were actually asked also what the city government should be focusing on, containing the spread of the virus is one, preparing the healthcare system is number two, and providing timely and accurate information on COVID-19 is number three. Assuring businesses that the government is doing something or protecting businesses from closure is on the sixth and seventh choice or yeah. top choice. Yes. Exactly because they can only do so much in terms of that aspect. Like if the health side is not taken care of then in the long run, like it really will matter. The sooner the health aspect is addressed, the easier they'll be able to bounce back. Yeah, definitely agree. So, after the survey, uh, you said you did it up to May? Yes. And now we are in the month of August. Can we say that the businesses are back? Unfortunately, no, because I think only 30% of businesses are actually resuming normal operations. It's interesting because businesses are actually asking for business development services. And uh, they're actually saying, asking for at least six business development services to prepare them to open up. So one is actually advice on how to prevent infections while maintaining business operations. They wanted also to be advised on business continuity planning. They also wanted advice on diversification of products and sales channels, online business management training, legal advice on application of labor regulations during the crisis, and advice on export and logistics restrictions as well as requirements. So those are the things that Apple, they, they wanted to advise on um, for them also to be prepared into the process of slowly opening up the economy. So given that, what do you think should be the focus of the city government in addressing this crisis in terms of helping the businessmen bounce back or go back to business? 
I think the primary priority still is on containing the spread of the virus, as I've mentioned a while ago, and ensuring that there's no further contamination. Primarily because the ability of the economy to open up fully is actually dependent on contamination rates, right? I think at any point in time when contamination in Tagbilaran will increase significantly and will be high enough to cross cause alarm across the populace, I think another enhanced community quarantine is on the horizon. So yeah, I think it's more about ensuring that we are containing the virus or we are containing the spread of the virus that matters so much at this point and stage. However, alongside that, I think there's also a need to provide financial and economic support to businesses, especially those that have been struggling significantly. So you have, for example, people that are offering transport services, more particularly those that are having van rentals, tourist buses that have been in demand prior to COVID-19. So they practically don't have anything anymore. So I, th I think the question would be, how do you want to support these types of businesses? So for a certain period in time, uh, restaurants are actually complaining. They wanted to be open. Uh, they, they wanted the city government to open up already. Uh, so very recently, we have restaurants opening up. But then with the restrictions in the number of people who can do dining, there's still a need for them to be able to recover significant losses in prior periods. It's really a difficult balancing act that the government needs to do in terms of addressing the needs. Yeah, precisely. I agree with you. When you did the survey months back, Bohol was technically COVID-free. Yes. And in the recent months or days, the COVID cases in Tagbilaran are rising. So given the survey and our reality right now, what do you think is the outlook? Is it a bright outlook or are we into this for a longer run? I think two things first before I answer that question right away. The first one is, I think our COVID-free situation for at least more than two months, if I'm not mistaken, is actually caused by the fact that there was lack of testing capacity. Test results are actually coming in very late uh, in the months. Yeah, exactly. That's why it's technically because yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. not really yeah. the That's situation. True. But in terms of the outlook of businesses, global estimates are actually saying that the virus will be here for a little bit longer than we expected. As a matter of fact, several projections point to 2021 or 2022 actually as a time at which we will be able to have full control over the virus, given, for example, the race towards the development of a vaccine and also the different measures that have been undertaken to look for the appropriate medical approach in treating coronavirus. In terms of the outlook of businesses, it's quite good to know that a majority of the businesses, and by majority, what I mean to say by this is at least around 58% of businesses are actually optimistic, while 42% are actually quite pessimistic about their outlook of their so out of that 42%, 13% are saying they will be closing in a month or less. Yeah? And 10% are closing in three months' time. And 19% in six months or more. And what's interesting about this is that if so you look at... the end at, of the year, like yeah, those 42% would like basically be gone. Yes. Well, a few of my friends in the Department of Trade and Industry are saying that they were already approached by a lot of businesses to have their business names cancelled. So that's actually in sync with what we're finding in this research. But if you look at the years in operation of the business or the type of the business, the ability to withstand this crisis is actually differentiated. So for example, for those that are 10 years and more, 61% are actually saying they will continue. Mm -hmm. But the rest is a little bit doubtful. But those that are 
very early in their game, those that are, shall we say, three years or less, are actually the most vulnerable. So new businesses actually are facing the risk of shutdown in the next six months. Now, if you look at the sectors, the service establishments and retailers are facing the risk of closure. So they're the ones that are most exposed to this risk. Services as well as retailers. Services primarily because Aguilaran is a service economy. And a lot of our businesses here are actually servicing tourism enterprises. Yes. So with Panglao Khan, with uh, tours, tourist Khan, uh, you can actually sense that these will be the businesses that will be most affected. The retailers, the younger ones, will be those that will probably lose out in the cash flow game. Because you you know, I mean, you don't have much of a cash flow stock from which you will base your operations on. So that's how it looks like. It's quite bleak. So this is like a battle of those who are here longer and at the same time it's also a consideration on the industry that the business yes, is Yes, precisely. And in the last episode in this series, I'll be talking more about low-touch economy. Because I think low-touch economy is a term that's being used by the Board of Innovation. And I think this is something which is really instructional in terms of moving forward. They were actually saying that those economies that are low-touch, meaning less touching, with hands, and so on, will be the ones that will likely survive. So tourism, for that matter, is a very high-touch economy. That's why we're seeing now, for example, airlines that are closing, hotels that are actually merging, and some others are closing as well. Okay, so to close our conversation for this episode, it's worth mentioning that what you did during this pandemic is actually making use of what expertise you have in terms of helping or contributing to the solution for this crisis. So it's using the power of data to help find solutions. So if you were to pick up a reflection or a takeaway, major takeaway from what you've done as you conducted the research? I think my main realization is that we really need data to be able to chart the way forward. And by data, I mean not only quantitative, but also qualitative data. So for example, in the course of the research, we're actually looking at numbers, how much people are actually losing in terms of revenue. But we also look into what are the reasons why they lost their revenue? What are the needs or what are their needs in terms of recovering lost revenue, for example? And I think you will not be able to get these types of insights if you will not be able to talk to people who are mostly the ones affected by the crisis. So still, we need numbers, but we need stories to tell us more about what the numbers are actually saying. And that is what this podcast is all about. Precisely. Stories in numbers. Yes. So having said that, we thank you for this afternoon's episode of Stories in Number. And we talk to you again in the next episode. And Nico, we will be talking about... We will be talking about the impact of the pandemic on employees and workers. Okay, so that's it. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening. And speak soon. Bye. Stories in Numbers. Thank you.